I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. As the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment approaches on August 26th, I was recently joined by historians Martha Jones and Lisa Tetro for a superb conversation exploring the history and legacy of the 19th Amendment. The discussion highlighted the untold stories of women from all background who fought for women's suffrage and equality from all. Uh, it was so great that we shared it on our companion podcast live at the National Constitution Center, where you can hear more of our town hall programs. And I wanted to share it with you, dear We the People listeners, as well. We'll be back next week with a new episode of We the People. Welcome. Thank you. Lisa Tetra, I have to thank you for your great advice with the National Constitution Center's new exhibit on the 19th Amendment, uh, How Women Won the Vote. It's in that beautiful building, which is on the, on the backdrop behind me, where we're going to open on August 26, which is the actual 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. Today, of course, we're talking to our friends on August 6th, the 100th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, or, or rather the uh, day of the anniversary. Um, you, in your great book about Seneca Falls, the myth of Seneca Falls, memory and the women's suffrage movement, argue that Seneca Falls was not the beginning of the women's suffrage movement, which in fact began far earlier. Tell us about the origin story of the fight for women's suffrage. Um, I think the first point there, Jeffrey, is that there is no single fight. Um, it is many, many, many fights. So it depends which strand of the story you pick up and then which where you trace it back to. Um, and we have contained a story from 1848 to 1920, but that was really a product of white suffragists themselves who were trying to elevate their particular fight and their particular agenda, particularly Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Um, and it had a lot to do with fights inside the movement where they were trying to exile and um, sideline other suffragists who didn't share their particular vision of suffrage activism. So even within a kind of white women's suffrage fight, um, there were many, many strands and many parts of the story. Um, and so in some ways, when we tell the story of Seneca Falls, we're really reading the end of the story back onto the beginning and missing a lot of the complexity. Um, and as we unravel 1920 on this anniversary, we are simultaneously and hopefully uh, increasingly unraveling stories of uh, beginnings. Martha Jones, in your forthcoming book, Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All, you argue that the movement didn't have an endpoint in 1920. And in fact, uh, we would do better to think of it as a struggle from the early 19th century all the way up through 1965. Tell us about that argument and also about the heroic African-American women who you highlight and whose stories you tell. When we take the uh, vantage point of African-American women, um, it turns out that the start point and the end point, if indeed there is one, um, these are very different. Um, so Vanguard begins in uh, the first decades of the 19th century with truly pathbreaking African-American women who first and foremost develop a political critique 
um, that is one that decries both the influence of racism as well as the influence on sexi of sexism on American politics. And this becomes, if you will, the signature um, and defining feature of African-American women's politics uh, going forward. Um, yes, 1920 is a landmark moment for some African-American women in states like New York, um, Illinois, California. Black women will be voting even before ratification of the 19th Amendment, but for too many African-American women, um, the 19th Amendment, while a landmark, is not the gateway to voting rights at all. And state laws, um, Jim Crow laws, like poll taxes and literacy tests, will keep far too many Black women from the polls until, in 1965, as you suggest, the passage of the Voting Rights Act gives a kind of teeth to both the 15th Amendment from 1870 and the 19th Amendment from 1920 and opens up a new chapter in voting rights for Black Americans, one in which now there will be federal oversight um, that looks to guarantee the right to vote for the very first time. Well, let's take the story up chronologically so we understand the relationship of the movement for women's suffrage from Seneca Falls leaders and from African-American women. So, Lisa, tell us about Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the, the women at the heart of the Seneca Falls uh, movement. What was the Seneca Falls Convention arguing for when it invoked the Declaration of Independence to argue that all men and women are created equal? And how did what began as a movement in the early 19th century for women's civil rights more generally focus in particular on the right of women to vote? Well, that's a big story. Um, well, I would start off with uh, saying that I think really this begins at the founding more appropriately. And there were women at the founding, um, probably many, many, many more than we know of because many voices were not preserved, uh, already saying if man is capable of self-government, why am not I? Um, and we know quite famously that Abigail Adams would say, remember the ladies, but she was certainly not alone. And the founding uh, framers of the Constitution and others spoke repeatedly of the upswelling of desires for self-governance uh, and of voting and of um, uh, many other rights at the time of the founding. And I think we don't really have a clear picture in many ways of just how robust that sentiment was among, um, among women, partly because those records haven't been kept. Um, but by the time we start to see some uh, stirring for voting, uh, it is uh, a very different kind of American democracy. We can't really tell this story without telling the, the sort of evolution of American democracy itself because gender is not an isolated variable in this story. Um, and as voting starts to change and become something that is more central to people's lives by the 1820s and the 1830s, many people start to incorporate that into their overall calls for rights, but not in a way that they center it as the most important of their rights. And for many people, uh, what was necessary for the strength of American democracy was something else entirely. And um, for example, the abolition of slavery. But the Seneca Falls Convention is, as we know it, the first women's rights convention in the United States. It is not the first call for the vote, which is often said about it. That's part of the mythology that I trace in my book. Uh, Susan B. Anthony was not, in fact, there. 
although she is routinely placed there in her obituaries, it will say she began the fight at Seneca Falls, uh, which is also part of the mythology, which I tell in my book. And uh, it was a local impromptu convention that no one at the time would have thought was uh, sparking a movement or that um, began the movement. And nobody would say that really, that this convention, which took that founding document and turned it into this cry for women's rights, saying, for example, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, and then they add, and women are created equal. And this is the famous Declaration of Sentiments, their manifesto that they issue. And in that, they instead of listing grievances against the king, they list grievances against man, and then a series of demands, which include everything from... Um, uh, voting to uh, equal pay, to equal education, to access to the professions, to an end of the sexual double standard, uh, to property holding. Um, and again, many of these are concerns that address a certain type of woman's life, but aren't necessarily addressing the concerns of other women. So it's it's a kind of women's rights agenda that puts the vote in it, but it doesn't center the vote. That doesn't happen until quite a bit later. And um, that'll happen after the American Civil War. And we can talk more about that. But that sense that this began the movement, Seneca Falls, uh, is something that gets created after the American Civil War and then read back onto the beginning um, in a way that is about politics after the American Civil War and adjudicating those politics. But Seneca Falls is routinely used as the beginning and Susan B. Anthony is routinely and erroneously placed there in a way that really hurts our understanding of the movement and of voting rights generally and of the evolution of American democracy. Well, Martha Jones, help us understand how, after the Civil War, the movement began. And your previous book, All Bound Up Together, you tell the amazing story of how African-American activist women, who were often marginalized in public life in the 1830s, became community leaders by the 1890s. Introduce, if you will, the complicated and important relationship between the women's suffrage movement and the abolitionist movement. We have Frederick Douglass standing with women's suffrage advocates arguing for votes for African-Americans and for women, but the movements splinter after the Civil War. It's a complicated story. Help us understand it. Thanks. You're bringing us to the 1860s, um, to an extraordinary, um, some would say revolutionary moment uh, in the history of American law and politics, this opportunity to rethink the fundamental terms of the U.S. Constitution, a 13th Amendment that abolishes slavery, a 14th Amendment that establishes birthright citizenship and equality before the law, and finally a 15th Amendment that will prohibit the states from using race as a criteria when meeting out voting rights. Um, there indeed is an old um, coalition of folks who have radical activists, women's rights activists, abolitionists, who have known each other, some of them for a very long time, who reconvene in the 1860s. And the question before them is, what is their relationship going to be to this constitutional revolution that is being wrought in many ways, not in their meetings, but in Congress? And you have the coming together of figures like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frederick Douglass, um, the great abolitionist Wendell Phillips. Um, and it is true that this coalition really struggles over whether to endorse um, and whether to support um, ratification of the 14th and most importantly, the 15th Amendment, which will, um, again, speak to race, but not speak to gender when it comes to voting rights. Oftentimes, this is a story that's told as a face-off between Frederick Douglass, an African-American man, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a white woman. Um, and this is a troubling 
um, myth, to borrow Lisa Tetro's framing, it's a troubling myth because, of course, um, there are also African-American women in these meetings. Um, Sojourner Truth, um, the very well-known by this period um, anti-slavery and women's rights orator, um, and Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who is somewhat of a newcomer but has established herself as a poet and a public speaker. I want to focus on Harper because she, when we focus on her as an African-American woman, we learn something about what is troubling this meeting. And Watkins Harper comes in and she's deeply skeptical about just about everybody in the room. She is quite sure that no one quite appreciates the circumstances that African-American women face in this new extraordinary moment as they look to law and politics to address both racism and sexism simultaneously. It isn't possible in Watkins Harper's view to take a position that speaks to anti-Black racism and doesn't also speak to gender. Her often quoted line is, we are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity. And this becomes the signature contribution that African-American women will make to this ongoing debate over voting rights that will continue, I'd say, even until our own time. This view that it is not possible to parse out access to the polls, access to office holding, to jury service, and more along man-made differences, as she would put it, like race and gender, that she asks this coalition, including Stanton, including Douglas, to really lift their sights to the interests of all humanity, as she would put it. Um, and this is the position that Black women will put on the table. They will not carry the day in the 1860s, but they will press this position coming all the way through the 19th Amendment and beyond. And I guess I'll leave it to another panel to decide whether we've actually um, arrived at that ideal, but it's Frances Helen Watkins Harper who puts that on the table as early as the 1860s. In your new book, Vanguard, you tell the story not only of Frances Helen Watkins Harper, but also of other heroic black women, Maria Stewart, Fanny Lou Hammer, and more. Tell us about their activism during this crucial period between the passage of the 15th and 19th Amendment. Uh, some activists were arguing for change at the state level. Others were arguing for uh, courts to recognize women's suffrage. What was the position of these African-American women you write about? And how successful were African-American women in particular in getting the right to vote in the states during this crucial transition period? One of the important facets of this story in my research was to recognize that while we have been able to recover um, small and important numbers of African-American women who are part of the women's suffrage associations that take us, if you will, from the Civil War to the 19th Amendment, it is a small number of African-American women. So part of my work was to ask where, where did where were black women if they weren't a part of these suffrage associations? And one of the myths about them is that they hadn't been interested in politics, they hadn't been interested in voting rights. So I wind up following them, um, if you will, to the places where they do gather. And it turns out that African-American women are gathered in important numbers by the thousands and the tens of thousands. First in their churches, Black Methodist and Baptist churches, where in the same period they're engaged in pitched debates over their political power within religious denominations. Will they have preaching licenses? 
Um, will they have offices within their denominations? Will they be ordained to the ministry? And when they engage in these debates, they are speaking precisely the sorts of language that, and making the sorts of arguments that are animating suffrage debates at this very same moment. Now, by the 1890s, by 1895 and 19, 1896, African-American women are indeed prepared to gather in a national organization, but it will not, again, be a suffrage association. It will be the National Association of Colored Women. It will be a club movement that gathers together hundreds and thousands of local black women's clubs across the country and activates them for a whole range of political work. Even before suffrage, these clubs are organizing against lynching and advocating for federal anti-lynching legislation, um, led in, to an important degree by the great suffragist, black suffragist Ida B. Wells. Um, so the founding of black women's politics as a companion to the suffrage movement is through an organization that, yes, comes to adopt women's suffrage as part of its agenda and to work hard to that end, but at the same time is active and committed to what we'd say in 21st century parlance was anti-racist work, right? In particular, the uh, move for federal anti-lynching legislation. Black women do not find a comfortable um, home in suffrage associations. Um, the important degree to which racism has informed that movement for some women individually, but more importantly, I think strategically um, and instrumentally, um, it means that African-American women never find a comfortable home here. Um, but at the same time, they are, as Lisa Tetro has suggested, already part of the political machines in cities like New York and Chicago, um, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, even before the 19th Amendment. So they are beginning to work their political power to influence the agenda, particularly of the Republican Party of that era. Um, and at the same time, Black women are organizing with one another citizenship schools and suffrage schools, because what they know, and it is no secret, in the years leading up to the ratification of the 19th Amendment, that they will face an additional set of hurdles in too many states, poll taxes, literacy tests, in addition to intimidation and violence. And so suffrage and citizenship schools become the ways that black women prepare one another. And it turns out they also prepare black men who have been away from the polls for a very long time for a new wave of registration, new attempts to cast ballots in the fall of 1920. Um, as we know, too much of that will not succeed and require black women to mount yet another movement for women's suffrage, if you will, one that begins in August of 1920. Lisa Tatro, take us up from 1913 to the passage of the amendment, because we are commemorating its 100th anniversary this year. In March 1913, the two women's movements, as Martha Jones describes them, of African-American women marchers and white women converged on the eve of a presidential inauguration and set in motion a series of events that led to a dramatic last minute shift of a vote by a Tennessee senator who got a letter from his mother and then the amendment was proposed and passed. Um, tell us about that story. Why did it pass when it did? Um, 
it's a cinematic finish, the uh, the ratification, both the, the fight for the actual voting, uh, uh, you know, where Congress approves the amendment, and then it goes to the states for a three-fourths for ratification. Um, beginning often, people say, with this parade in 1913, uh, which was uh, a massive peaceful protest in Washington, D.C., done on the eve of Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, precisely in order to upstage him for his opposition to women's suffrage. Hundreds of thousands of people turn out in the streets. Tens of thousands of women are marching. Um, and violence erupts. Um, this is the kind of violence that many uh, women of color experience on a daily basis, but it's shocking for Americans, white Americans, to see this happen to sort of good upstanding white women. Um, it makes front page press. Um, uh, there is, uh, of course, you know, the usual racial tensions and concessions to white supremacy with inside uh, white suffragist activism. They ask uh, that Ida B. Wells, who is, you know, uh, one of the nation's premier civil rights activist, Mary Church Terrell, uh, a black sorority, and others to march at the rear of the parade. Um, and this is emblematic in many ways of the um, ways in which white suffragists made concessions to and accommodations to white supremacy in order to further the cause of eradicating the word male, but not fighting more generally for the right to vote of all peoples. Um, and that parade leaves Alice Paul, uh, who directs it, um, and who becomes kind of the center of the theatrics of the campaign, to go on and do a more and more theatrics, including uh, picketing the White House, uh, underscoring as we enter World War I, the ways in which the United States is defending democracy abroad, but not protecting it at home. Uh, and then it would lead up to Congress finally passing this for many, many, many reasons, including, I would argue, the fact that um, the southern states have now officially disenfranchised African Americans with um, Jim Crow laws. I think that's part of why the amendment passes. We rarely talk about that because we talk about gender as an isolated variable. Um, and they know that women of color, you know, will have difficulty voting. Um, and then it goes to ratification, it flies through ratification until it stops, sits with one state short for months and months and months. Tennessee takes it up. Looks like it's not going to pass. The youngest member, Harry T. Byrne, gets a letter from his mother, Feb, who tells him to, quote, be a good boy and help Mrs. Cap with the rat and ratification. With that, he changes his vote dramatically. It goes over by one. And, you know, the hundreds of thousands of votes and um, fights and letters have finally um, pushed the amendment over to ratification. It is truly a cinematic finish. But it is not the end of the right to vote or the creation of a right to vote. It is the eradication of the word male, which is significant but insufficient. Martha Jones, it was an insufficient achievement to pass the 19th Amendment. Uh, tell us what happened next. A African-American men, of course, in 1920 had already been severely disenfranchised by literacy tests, poll taxes, and other ruses that subverted the promise of the 15th Amendment. How did African-American women fare in voting between 1920 and 1965? Were they disenfranchised at an even greater rate than African-American men and with different illicit means. Um, tell us about their story and how they contributed ultimately to the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Sure. There's no question but that um, African-American women in a strong sense become equal to their male counterparts in 1920. Um, but that means also equally disenfranchised, um, subject to the same Jim Crow laws. Um, the adaptation of Jim Crow laws um, in Georgia, the poll tax requirements applied only to men um, have to be amended now to include women as a bar to the voting or an impediment to voting for black women in the state of Georgia. But African-American women, again, in the National Association of Colored Women, now headed by 
um, an Ohioan, uh, Hallie Quinn Brown, call on Alice Paul in 1921, um, on the eve of the last, what turns out to be the last meeting of the National Women's Party. And they implore Alice Paul to stay in the fight for voting rights, um, even um, with the victory of the 19th Amendment behind them, uh, because Black women know that the 19th Amendment is not going to be enough to get all of them to the polls. Um, they are disappointed by Alice Paul, who will move on to um, laudable concerns like the Equal Rights Amendment. But African-American women now will, to an important degree, link arms with African-American men in a civil rights agenda that looks to topple many of the pillars of Jim Crow, including um, grandfather clauses and poll taxes and other state-level impediments to the vote. Um, this is a story that takes us through to the modern civil rights era and the 1965 ratification of the, of the or excuse me, a passage of the Voting Rights Act. But what I want to point out in this interim 45 years is that African-American women, though disfranchised, do not sit on the sidelines and um, wait until that moment when they'll be welcomed to the polls. Um, I write about a figure like Mary Church Terrell, a Floridian, um, a, um, a staunch voting rights activist in Florida in 1919 and 1920, an educator, um, the founder of Bethune-Cookman University. Well, when Bethune can't make good on voting rights for black women in Florida, she comes to Washington and introduces herself to Franklin Roosevelt and will help Roosevelt by the 30s establish what is often referred to as his black cabinet. Bethune understands that power in Washington certainly comes by way of the election of representatives, but in the wake of the depression and the advent of the New Deal state, if one can commandeer the resources of federal agencies, um, which are charged with digging the nation out of the depression, one can actually do a great deal for black communities across the country. And Bethune will use that kind of influence, a deep friendship with Mrs. Roosevelt as well, to bring black Americans um, literally to Washington to work in those agencies, but most importantly, to re um, direct the resources of those agencies toward black Americans, all of this long before we get to the Voting Rights Act. So this is why um, black women can never be single issue um, political uh, agents. Um, they have to be nimble, they have to be inventive, um, they have to be ready to seize opportunities where they exist. And Bethune is a wonderful example of a consummate politician who, when she's thwarted at the polls, figures out now how to get close to power in Washington and do something with it. Thank you so much, Martha Jones and Lisa Tetro, for uh, illuminating and rich discussion of the complicated and important history of the 19th Amendment. We'll look forward to the next panels about the present and future of the fight for the right to vote. And friends, we'll look forward to seeing all of you in person at the National Constitution Center and online at constitutioncenter.org to celebrate, commemorate, and learn about this crucial constitutional anniversary. Lisa Tetro, Martha Jones, thank you so much for joining. Good to Thanks be with you. Us. 
This episode was engineered by Greg Shackler and produced by Jackie McDermott and Tanea Tauber. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich, Nicholas Mosvik, and Jake LaFons. The program was presented as part of the symposium 19th Amendment, Past, Present, and Future, uh, in partnership with All In Together, the George and Barbara Bush Foundation, the LBJ Presidential Library, the National Archives, the 19th, and the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. It's part of the National Constitution Center's Women and the Constitution Initiative, a year-long celebration of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which will occur on August 26th, so be sure to tune into our programming then. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere who's hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and debate. And always remember, friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.